Welcome to the Best of MBS podcast, a collection of the best interviews hosted by Michael Bungay-Stanier, best-selling author of The Coaching Habit and How to Begin. Today's interview is from The Coaching Habit podcast. Here's your host, MBS. So here we are back to The Coaching Habit podcast. I am your host, Michael Bungay-Stanier. I don't think I've ever called myself that before, but yes, that's me on this end of the phone. So who you are wondering is on the other end of the phone. Who am I having a conversation about today around insights and the journey and the tools and whatever to become somebody who can be more coach-like in the world? Well, it is a longtime friend of mine, Desiree Adaway. Now, I've actually known Desiree for probably about 10 years, although we just connected briefly before we hit the record button. I'm like, I haven't seen her or spoken to her for about three years or something since we hung out by a pool down in Arizona somewhere. So, <laughs> yes exactly. exactly so no 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 remember i ran into you randomly in oh, miami florida that was so amazing i was walking down the street and it's like michael i'm like okay nobody knows me here so i don't know what's going on but it was there right. i just happened to be walking in the same street in the same city on the very same That's day right exactly that was so cool i'd forgotten about that anyway so why am i talking to desiree well she is a wonderful person wonderful woman great coach she is a seasoned non-profit consultant and facilitator and as she teaches, all of her content is thought-provoking, but infused with both humor and wit. And you'll get a really good sense of that as we, we talk today. As she teaches, she really makes a point to connect with the people she works with to create a safe space for her, their growth, because that's kind of the focus of Desiree's work. She's known by the people around her, the staff, the leadership, the peers, the partners as being open, honest, and a great champion for productive conversations. And here's what I love. She is really willing to look at the stuff that potentially gets in the way of us doing great work, not just the external factors, but how we show up with our own fears and anxieties and our biases, all of that, and how that can get in the way of doing great work. So you can see a perfect person to be talking to today. So Desiree, welcome. It's so nice to be talking to you again. It's so nice to, to be invited and be here and have the opportunity to share with, with your community. Thank you. In a, in a minute, I want to ask you, actually, let me, I'm going to jump in and ask this question right away. What, what are you up to these days? I mean, I've known you for some years and you've been doing interesting stuff. I'm curious to know, what's the work you're excited about that you're really kind of on fire with about these days? I would actually say um, I've been doing a lot of anti-oppression work uh -huh. and not just anti-race. Um, I've been helping a lot of organizations have some really difficult conversations around race, class, and gender. Mm. So if you were to ask me ultimately what I've been up to, I like to say I've been ultimately up to liberation and figuring out how do we all get free together. Ooh, that's a pretty fine call to action, isn't it? I love that. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I, feel like I, I, need to, I feel like I should be picking up a flag and waving it right at this moment. <laughs> yeah. How do, how do we get free together is really the work I've been doing. How I mean, you're a you're a black woman, but um, I am curious to know what brought you to this sort of work. I mean, how do you end up doing this? Well, I've I've kind of always done it, right? Mm. So I was always the person uh, when I was worked within institutions, organizations, and then uh, when I've been working for myself in the, almost the past ten years, uh, you know, I was the person that would have the difficult conversations and working with clients. I realized that a lot of those difficult conversations were about race, class, or gender, and around the institutions and the organizations that we work with. So I help people, organizations, and institutions really understand, analyze, and act 
from the, you know, to create uh, systems that help us mitigate these multiple forms of oppression that that affect our lives. And that could be sexism, racism, right. homophobia, transphobia, language, justice, abilities, all these different things. We all have all these different identities and, and, and we navigate these multiple dimensional realities that we navigate work with. Such a big conversation. How good are organizations at engaging in conversations like that? I mean, I can, I've no doubt there are people within them, you know, perhaps the people in some form or other in championing diversity and inclusion in the work that's being done, people who bring you in to help them and do that work. But just in general, I found organizations, they're just resistant, they to, they're resistant to change, right? There's this homeostasis. They're like, we like the way it's always been. So I'm just curious to know how you kind of, you start that process of liberation of those conversations about oppression within organizations. Well, it has to start in leadership. I, you know, I always tell folks you can, so normally, right, the conversation comes, oh, Desiree, help us, basically help us with diversity, help us hire. And when people say diversity, they mean it in just the, the most basic sense of the word, right? Mm -hmm. So what they're saying is help us hire more brown people, right. or people who have some outward diversity, Right. So we can check off these boxes. Right. And that's that's data. Inclusion is a feeling of belonging, uh. of shared power. And I always tell um, organizations, you start with diversity, but it actually ends with justice. Nice. And so I then help them to see a pathway um, because this work is not optional, Michael. Like it's 2018. The demographics is that the country is getting browner and younger. Yep. And so organizations that don't, they don't crack this nut now will be irrelevant 20 years from now. So I am a straight, white, overeducated, Western, eloquent man. Funny man. You forgot. <laughs> oh, funny. okay. I've got a sense of humor as well. That is true. Yes. Um, so I, I do a pretty good job at, at feeling included all the time because, you know, the... <laughs> This is because the, the world's built around you. The world is built around me. If I'm if I'm not feeling included, I've done something wrong somewhere because That's you know right. the world is set up to you know make me feel included. Mm -hmm. How do you help people like me understand that the way I feel is not necessarily the way other people are feeling? Because I get the feeling of inclusion because it's with me a lot of the time. But I, I, how do I get that empathy for other people and go well? Uh, how do I teach you to be empathetic? Well, first <laughs> I actually have to help you. I use a model um, by this great genius woman called Barbara Love, and it's called liberatory consciousness. Mm. And at liberatory consciousness, we really talk about the people who are the most marginalized, who are the most targeted, should always be at the center of the solution. Right. So say we're in an institutional organization, whoever your most marginalized staff folks are, if you are making sure their needs are being met, then trust me, Michael, your needs is the white, straight, heterosexual, yeah. English-speaking, you know, upper-middle-class man. Your needs will be met. Right. Love it. So we have to flip that power structure. Right. Um, and so when we think about liberatory consciousness, it has four or five steps and awareness. So it's it's us understanding, doing our work, processing. How is this person not being seen, heard, or acknowledged? Yeah. Really getting an understanding of that. And then we do an analysis. What are the norms, the policies, the behaviors that are maintaining this oppressive thing for these folks? Love that. Then after that, 
you do action because you cannot do the right action without the analysis. Right. Action without analysis causes harm. Right. It's just like running around like a headless chicken, but you like a headless chicken. So then you want to act. So so from that deep analysis, you didn't get to do the right action, the best, the next decision that will challenge and transform Mm. the policies and the norms and the culture. And then from there is accountability. How do we know that it's working? And how it feels to me that this is a process that takes me, you know, as a person at the moment, right at the heart of the way things work, kind of through a process of shifting me a little bit or a lot so that, as you say, you get to put that person who's been oppressed, most oppressed, perhaps right at the center of the way things are are run now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm like, I'm all for, I'm all for inclusion in theory, but in practice, I don't really want to give anything up. <laughs> right, exactly. So, and this is what you have to understand, Michael. You are so privileged, right? Right. But the thing about privilege is you can give it away all day long and you will never lose it. Right. You, Michael, will never lose all your privilege. You can <laughs> share it in all the amazing ways. You can wake up every morning and you can do something amazing for 18 million people. And the next day you're still going to wake up as Michael Bungay Stanier. Right. My hand full of privilege. I love that. It's a really powerful insight. It's, uh, it's that whole piece around that metaphor around light. Like once you light another candle, you haven't diminished your own candle. You've just lit you another candle. You don't get diminished by yeah. being empathetic. You don't get diminished by questioning the status quo. And no one is saying that difference, that that by bringing in that voice that isn't that has not been heard, that you don't get a say. Mm. That's not what's being said at all. So what's at the center of this work is actually you saying, I am not going to uphold the status quo that puts me at the top of this hierarchy. Right. It's you saying, I'm actually going to be brave in my personal life in my professional life, and I am going to push the status quo, because you know what's at the center of keeping that status quo? No. Fear, ignorance, confusion, and insecurity. Right. It does feel a lot safer hanging out with a bunch of other straight white men, (laughs) in my case. Which is is why I actually tell people, um, if you want to be safe, I'm not the person that you work with. If you want to be brave, I'm the person that you work with. I love that. Let me shift the, the conversation to talk about you, because what I love about this podcast series is when I talk to great leaders, great coaches, great thinkers, you know, you're one of all of those. It's not just it's like what you do and how do you do it. It's like, what, what's the journey you've taken to get here? And one of the questions I love is, you know, what's the crossroad moment or moments that's brought you here? That moment where you're like, I could have gone left, I could have gone right, I went left. And that kind of made all the difference. I'm wondering if you have a story there to share. Well, there are a couple of things. So uh, this has always been a part of my work. Yeah. Uh, and I, over the years, I've always, I've always worked with activists and with activist organizations and um, have coached activist leaders, have uh, helped in terms of strategy and and fundraising and um, kind of, you know, thinking about kind of long-term coalition building. So I had clients who were on the front line in Ferguson and in Baltimore and in uh, Chicago. And so folks that y'all saw on the news getting tear gassed um, 
and arrested or organizations and clients that I, I worked with. So in working with those folks, like the level of amazing commitment and bravery and just commitment to community um, and love of community, I found to be wholly inspiring. But I think my kind of crossroad moment happened when Sandra Bland was murdered in Texas. Um, and I think it, it, it hit me in particular because I have a daughter who is exactly Sandra Bland's age. Right. And who moved across country to take a job. Mm -hmm. And just like Sandra Bland had done. And my background is also in international development. And I did a lot of work in living and working abroad. And I understand and have lived in countries where people have disappeared. Mm -hmm. And so when Sandra Bland was stopped because of, you know, how many times have you driven a car and didn't signal when you were changing lanes, Michael, a million. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then when she, you know, was stopped for a traffic accident, ended up in jail for a weekend and was dead by Monday. And when that video came out of how that all went down, I, I literally think something inside of me broke because I was like, that that could be my kid. Yeah. Um, and for me, I really said, wow, we literally now live in a country where people are scooped up and disappear with the police over a weekend and then are wound up dead. Like that is some... That is some third world regime. Right. It's like right? That, that was happening in Chile that's, and the Salvador in 1970. Yeah. That is what happened in apartheid. Right. And it hit me that there has to be more urgency in this work. There has to be more urgency in, in this work. And that social justice is not just a goal. It's a process. Right. And it is, it means for me, full and equitable participation for all of our social identities and that we need systems and institutions that meet all of our needs, not some of our needs. Thanks. Thank you for telling us that. Yeah. So as part of that journey, you know, part of it for me is seeing those crossroad moments, those moments that have sparked us into commitment or action or kind of a bolder step forward into whatever that journey might be for us. And I think part of what allows us to move towards mastery is, of course, not just the work we do for others, but the work we do for ourselves, our own work. Mm. And um, yeah, so often, it's, as I say, I think most of these podcasts, I'm like, turns out that I don't have a thousand lessons to learn. I have two lessons to learn 500 <laughs> times each. I mean, it's just the same damn thing, just showing up in a slightly different way. So I'm always curious to know that to people like you who I look up as a master, What's the hard lesson that you've had to learn along the way or maybe continue to learn along the way? That there's always something else to learn. Right. That it, I mean, I wake up every day and I read. Uh, I had folks who were laughing at me because I was reading um, a book on critical race theories and then, you know, intersectionalities and oppression. And then for lunch, I was reading, you know, a book around conflict and how it how do you have conflict in ways that don't necessarily trigger people so it's not abuse like i that there's one there's always something out there to learn and then for me in my day-to-day and -day working with institutions um 
my language has got to evolve more. I use ableist and sexist language, gender language, um, all the time. I'm 52, and when I'm teaching or training, I'll use terms like guys. Right. That's weird, isn't it? That one. I catch and, myself or, doing that. I'm like, hey, guys. Yeah, or I'm I'll like... say something like, you know, they were totally blind to this. And, right. And I'm like, wait, that's sexist and ableist language. And right. that's, there are better ways for me to say these things. Right. And so when I teach, I will say to a group, let me tell you one of the things that I am currently working on. Oh, I love that. It is, it is my language. So as I'm teaching y'all today, as we're working through these things, if I use ableist or sexist language and you hear that, I say throw up a piece, throw a piece of paper at me, wad it up and throw it at me. I like it. I like it. Thank you. I have to be called out in those exact moments. Yeah. And that way I can model how to apologize and how to move forward because in this work, we all will make mistakes. And I want us to learn how not to throw people away when we make the mistakes. (laughs) And what I love is I can hear you banging on the table as you're telling me the point. You're like, yeah. I get so angry when I use it, when I'm like, oh, I know better. Yeah, I know. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about the I'm blind to you. I I know that I occasionally go, hey, guys, why don't we do this? And I'm like, that is such a weird thing to be saying to a room that's like half women typically so yeah it's very confusing like that sometimes so i use the term y'all a lot you do mm-hmm. i was wondering whether you needed to call that out as being some sort of weird southern texas thing or i'm like i'm sorry no, that's not a, allowed it's either a weird southern thing but it works in <laughs> rooms like that <laughs> that's very good so let me tap into your expertise as a as a coach and a facilitator um because part of what i'm i love about this podcast series is i get people to share the tools that they love, the tools that they work with, the ones that they're kind of their go-to tools or processes or models. Because the people who are listening who, you know, I'm going to guess not many of them are are actual coaches, but there's a bunch of people committed to being more coach-like. And they're always looking for the best tools and the best processes to use. So do you have a default beloved tool or process or model that you find you use consistently in your work? There's a professor, Bobby Haro, who has two pieces that I always use, foundational pieces that I use in my work, and they go together. And Dr. Haro created the cycle of uh, socialization and then the cycle of liberation. Mm. And the cycle of socialization basically shows how all of us are biased, how all of us uphold the status quo, how we are socialized, and then how if we don't follow the socialization, we get punished. Right. And... And as a part of, and it's a, it's a circle and it talks about the first people who socialized you and then how systems and institution, churches and music and language, how, you know, how you're socialized into that. And then it talks about how we hit dissonance, right? Like Mm. how something happens and we have a choice and that choice is, and that's one of the questions I ask people is, you know, what actions are you doing to uphold the status quo? So are we going to stay and uphold the status quo and then just continue with that cycle? Or we can step off that cycle and step into the cycle of liberation. And the cycle of liberation talks about then how we relearn, how we create, bring bring in new communities, how we share our learning, how we expand our view of the world. And so I use both of those pieces quite often as foundational pieces to 
how do we get where we need to go? We first need to understand how we all got here and how getting here does not make us, there's no guilt that we need to bring with that, but there's responsibility. And now how do we take that on and move forward? It's kind of like you 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 got your vision of the red pill or the blue pill there. It's like, <laughs> do you keep just circling the circle of socialization and go, I'm fine, it's fine, we're all fine. Or that you know, step into the red pill or whatever and cycle of liberation where you're going and here's how we disrupt the status quo to bring forth, you know, equality and liberty for people. Yeah. And while at the center of that status quo is that fear, ignorance and confusion and insecurity, mm. what's at the center of liberation is joy and love and community and, you know, all the things that it doesn't matter what oppressive system you are fighting. If we don't build this new vision with joy and community and love and balance, then we're just going to create some other oppressive system. Just right. This has been a great conversation. And there are going to be people who are really interested in finding out more about you and the work that you do and kind of connecting with you in ways. So thank you. And I'm grateful for the work that you're doing in this world. For the people who want to find more about you, can you point them to where they can find you on the web or somewhere? Sure. Um, DesireeAdaway.com, D-E-S-I-R-E-E-A-D-A-W-A-Y.com. I'm on Facebook. I love friending and connecting with folks on Facebook. So Desiree Attaway, I love the rhythm of your surname, A-D-A-W-A-Y. <laughs> Perfect. Yep. Desiree, such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this Best of MBS interview. Want more great content? Head to mbs.works. There you'll find MBS's new podcast, Two Pages. You can learn about his best-selling books, and you can join the newsletter. That's mbs.works.